0: This is the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of October 4th, 2021. Current Federal Tax Developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, coming this week from Phoenix, and hopefully this time my recording will work and won't get interrupted. It turns out I forgot to turn off the ability for somebody to try to send me a FaceTime call, and I'm recording on a Mac this week, so... Unfortunately, turns out just Do Not Disturb on the Mac doesn't stop that. Apparently, Apple doesn't consider a FaceTime call to be an interruption. So kind of fun. But I think now I have knocked off anything that the system may try to do. So we'll hope this time we get a little better on the structure. So let's talk about what's going on. This week, we're going to be looking at a few things. First, Congress is still working on the reconciliation infrastructure bills. and We'll talk about where we stand on those at the moment. We also are going to be looking at the tax court finally going on record for the proper treatment of hobby loss deductions. That is where we report those deductions on the tax return. We want to see how that goes, how that goes forward, and what exactly is going to be happening. And finally, we will look at the fact that the IRS released final regulations this week where we will now begin charging a fee, or they'll begin charging a fee, later this month if we want to get a closing letter on an estate. So we'll talk about that. Well, let's briefly discuss what's going on in Washington. You've probably been watching the news, and I understand You know, I'm going to have to give you the discussion based on Saturday morning, which may very well not be what the status is later. You never know when they're going to talk about this and what may come. So you may very well be looking at a different situation when you listen to this or watch this so that is a given as we stand at this instant i'm recording this we don't really have anything to go with other than what we had last week what we do know for sure is that the infrastructure bill vote did not take place and it is now very clear the infrastructure bill is tied directly to the 3.5 trillion dollar reconciliation package Uh, which may only be a $1.5 trillion package if you believe a memo that uh, came out about the agreement that got the original move forward out of the Senate for the infrastructure bill and the $3.5 trillion instructions, that we're going to be looking at a $1.5 trillion maybe. So it could be a substantially smaller package. That seems highly likely if it gets out, but that's all part of it. Now, there is a complication because we have not had a vote on the infrastructure package. You may remember that one of the ways they're going to fund the infrastructure package was to cut off the employee retention credit as of the end of September. Now, because of that, where they cut it off the end of September, we're going to have a problem because now we're past the end of September and there are employers who may qualify, who are not recovery startup businesses under the original infrastructure bill the only type of businesses that could get the employee retention credit after september 30 were recovery startup businesses the rsb so those that began operating a trader business on you know after february 15th of 2020 so that's a limited group that we're going to they're going to qualify but otherwise we're going to lose it. Now, this becomes a problem because you might, you know, Congress may be thinking, well, it's a payroll tax issue, and we don't need to worry about this because we don't do payroll taxes. You know, the payroll tax 941 won't be filed until January. But the problem is we have that Form 7200, under which we can request, you know, advances on this. And we also have the rule that allows us, to reduce our tax deposits for this particular amount of credit we're eligible for. If you have a business that is planning to do the reduction or is planning to file the Form 7200 and get money from the IRS, obviously if Congress comes back and then now passes the infrastructure bill with no change, retroactively they will lose that credit. That will create issues. Now, I suspect the smart thing for clients to do in this scenario is to treat it as if it will be gone and only start offsetting payroll tax deposits later if we find out that it's going to survive the rest. You know, it's going to survive past the end of the year. I think the longer we go without passing the infrastructure bill, the more likely it is that this has to stay in the law that could complicate the infrastructure bill because that was where some of the funding was officially coming from for the infrastructure bill was redirecting those unused funds quote unquote uh, from the cares act and other covid relief in order to you know use that to pay for this bill so that's kind of our problem we don't know what's happening there so that messes things up for a bit also it's very clear now that the two bills have to move together. We're not going to get a vote on one without the other. The moderates, you know, feel like the infrastructure bill, the only way they get that passed is if they get the progressives to go with them. And the, you know, and then they have negotiating power over the $3.5 trillion. The progressives believe that if they let the infrastructure bill go into law, that the moderates may simply just walk away and all it takes is one senator to walk away and the entire infra, you know the entire bill goes away so in essence there's a veto so what we now have is two different groups holding veto over the bill right the the progressives in the house and there's more than enough of them on the democratic side are essentially saying we're not passing the infrastructure bill Unless you guys give us the reconciliation bill and the moderates in the Senate. Well, primarily uh, Senator Manchin and Sinema are the ones that are on the record as saying we're not voting for the three point five trillion dollar package that the House is putting together. Uh, They're essentially saying, well, we're not voting for that package and we're not voting for that package in any form unless we get our other bill together. Now, this gets interesting, and at this point in time, it's really interesting to see who has the better negotiating position, but it's very possible that both of them just simply walk away from the table and nothing comes. It also seems to me at this point in time it is very, very likely that any bill, you know, whatever they do has to come down from the $3.5 trillion level. I don't think they're going to be able to force that one through. My guess is that there's going to be some compromises on both sides and you know and that 1.5 trillion quasi agreement letter that got leaked out apparently by senator mansion what would seem like he had the best interest to do it might tell us what the very top cap is of the program but we'll just see how things go forward you know will will we get a decision will they do something what that means for us though for tax planning which is really my issue i i got to look at this from a planning perspective and I agree with an article that was written this week in one of Steve Leimberg's letters from Leimberg Information Services. you described to his packages, one of the things which you got this week was an article talking about planning issues, mainly in the state tax. But I think an overall observation there probably makes sense, that at this point with the proposals on the table, it's highly unlikely that an effective date would move up for anything in the package. So, you know, it's highly unlikely we will see an effective date move forward. So, that if there's something like, you know, the changes in various uses of trust for estate planning, things you do and funds you try to move in on and after January 1st of 2022 would be covered by them, it's very likely that date would not move forward. So, you can conceive that if this passes and affects you, you'd want to take action before December 31st. But this comes with a caveat. If it's an action you would take anyway, maybe you're going to establish a grant or maybe you're going to establish an intentionally defective grant or trust. But it just, the client wasn't rushing around because they know they're not going to die in the next year. A little tough to know how they know that, but they know that. Um, So they, they figure they have time to get it done. And so they're just not moving very quickly. Well, you might speed that up and get it done. Understanding we'll need to do it by the end of the year. But there are some clients who don't want to do the trust for various reasons, who you know don't want to commit as much as they have to commit at that point. And those clients are ones where, well, you know, they'll do it if it's going to be a big savings. But if not, they don't want to commit yet. They want to hold on to it. Those clients are ones where you start talking about what you would do. You start preparing for the option but you don't necessarily pull the trigger. There doesn't seem to be any risk in not pulling the trigger before December 31st. You know, in essence, you could wait till that day. December 31st is the day you got to make a decision. But there's, and there could be a negative because the client really didn't want to have that. And they really didn't want to have those restrictions on the property. They didn't want to have all that happening. They're doing it just because, you know, it's their last chance to save estate tax. So they'll say, yeah, I really didn't want to do this you know for a number of years but I'll do it now those decisions kind of get put off now the fun comes when we get toward the end of the year and this is what you got to worry about clients there are two not good things could happen at your end that we need to react to option one they're still talking the programs are not dead but they're also not passed at that point The client's got to make a decision. You know, look, there is a chance none of this happens. There's a chance that you're going to do this and you didn't have to. Are you okay if that turns out to happen or do you consider that to be, you know, a result you just want to avoid? You would only do this if going before December 31st or by December 31st would actually save taxes and work would be forced by this law and if that's your position then we don't do it if you know unless you believe absolutely that it's going to pass but that's the client's call uh you know the other option is maybe you that is your position i'm absolutely just not going to do it unless we're sure it's going to law and then they pass the law on the 30th of december or we get the final draft, it becomes very, 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 very likely. We have, you know, we have the votes in line. We have the president backing it. It's going to happen. We may need to execute very quickly. Those are the things I think you got to tell your clients. And those are the things you're going to be working on. So keep an eye on that in the law. Remember the capital gain rate was already going to move up. Now, if we move to what's been rumored to be what's in Manchin's memo, that he wants to set the max rate at 28, not 25. I don't know if that moves the date or not. You know, that, that'll that be kind of open. You know, w- will we be able to sell later because it was a 28, not 25? My guess is no. They'll say you knew rates were going up. We told you that already on September 13th. Uh, so I don't know that you have a lot you can do with that. But again, we don't know until we see language. And of course, by the time we see language, see if they're going to move that date. It might be too late to move it. So, you know, you have to see things like that and keep your eye on the various things. And as I said, given if the package really is down to $1.5 trillion from $3.5 trillion of spending over the term, then some things aren't going to be in the tax bill that are there right now. And, you know, probably some revenue raisers will be missing, and we'd have to figure out which ones they are. You know, and that also is unknown, and that's something we'll be waiting on. Okay, let's talk about the tax court case now, because we got that. That's a little bit interesting this week and something you want to consider. This is the case of Gregory versus Commissioner, Tax Court Memorandum Decision, 2021-115. That was issued on September 29th of 2021. And let's talk about the facts of the case first and then why it's unusual. So this was a case where the taxpayer, right, ran a boat charter business that, again, the case doesn't directly say, but the only reason we'd be in court on this issue is because it's been operating at a loss and probably operating at a loss for a number of years. That's usually how these issues get before the court. Now, this was somewhat unusual for a lot of the hobby loss cases in that this charter business had significant gross receipts. It had over $300,000 of gross receipts this year but obviously had larger amounts of deductions than the gross receipts. So, you know, a lot of hobby loss cases, they have no income. That's also kind of why this becomes irrelevant, too. So we'll get to it that way. The IRS has obviously taken the position that this is an activity not into for a profit, what we tend to refer to as a hobby loss, under 183. And the only issue is under 183, the way the law reads, section 183B, there are two sets of deductions. So we take those deductions that you wouldn't be able to claim on Schedule C, and we divide, and we do two things with them. You're allowed a full deduction without limit for any item that you otherwise that you would get a deduction for the item, even if it wasn't in a business or a for-profit activity so for instance these boats let's say there are property taxes imposed on the boats that are based on their value if there's property tax on the boat based on its value that would be deductible anyway so that deduction right would be allowed so those we get but then we take gross receipts reduce gross receipts by those deductions we get anyway and if we still have remaining gross receipts, then the other deductions, this letter of 1A3B1, we get right up to the extent of that income reduced by those deductions we'd get anyway. But the question before us is, where exactly do those deductions get claimed? Right. We know we have deductions. We know they're involved. Where do we claim those deductions? That's probably the tough part we've got to look at here. Where do those deductions get claimed? Now, the IRS, in this case, moved everything to Schedule A, the itemized deductions page. They put the taxes on the section of Schedule A for taxes. And this is before 2018, before the TCJ took effect. So, you know, they would be fully allowed. They'd be up there unless he's subject to AMT. Okay, so that's fine. They then moved the other deductions. Everything else was allowed was a miscellaneous itemized deductions subject to the 2% of AGI cap. Okay, that was important to understand. It had to be subject to the 2% cap. So these deductions that were subject to the 2% cap is what we were allowed. And in his case, because his income was so high, he got no benefit from those deductions. His income was high enough that there was not a tax benefit to him of being able to claim those deductions. So he didn't get the benefit. That created the problem for him, right? Now, the taxpayer went to court and argued that under Section 183, he said Section 183 never said these were miscellaneous itemized deductions. So I want to say that they should be just plain old deductions offset against the income in computing my adjusted gross income. They would go above the line. And frankly, I've seen returns prepared that way by CPAs and EAs who might have been concerned an activity would be a hobby loss. So they went ahead and claimed, they would like put on Schedule C, they'd put the revenue up there. Uh, and then they would claim, list the list the deductions and then they would back off as a negative expense an amount equal to the income. So the net income from Schedule C showed zero, right? So they had the gross revenue on there, but net income was zero, so they were effectively deducting these and arriving at AGI. And the question we're asking today is, is that right? Well, the question of whether it's right depends on how do we determine if something is a miscellaneous itemized deduction? Or even better, how do we determine if something's an itemized deduction? That's probably the better question. How do we make that determination? And generally, how we make determination of if something is a miscellaneous itemized deduction, is you have to kind of understand the code. And if you look at the code, you're going to find out that there are different definitions involved in the code. Right? So let's talk about this. How do we define this? And the tax court discusses this. I'll take it in a slightly different order. Uh, Section 62 of the code, which is the definition of adjusted gross income, and it tells us essentially it is gross income, right? Whatever we have in incomes or income items reduced by the following list of specific deductions. And you find that under 62A as a list of very specific deductions. So for instance, deductions under 162 for a trader business unless that trader business is as an employee that's why employee business expenses are still one sixty-two deductions but they would go on to used to be would go to a two percent itemized now of course those go nowhere but that's why those are missing we're told that any expenses related to a rental or royalty is also used in computing agi now we've had a long discussion here under 199 cap a uh regarding the fact that rentals can be trader businesses and if they are we didn't need that protection but we also discussed things like especially triple net leases may not be a trader business in that case those triple net leases uh, even though they're not a trader business it's a straight up one-off triple net lease we still get the deductions above the line because section 62 has provision that allows for that they're in the list And you'll see there'll be in that list be things like IRA, deductible IRA contributions, um, the self-employed health insurance, the at, you know, the deduction for one half of the SE tax. All those things will be listed. HSA contributions. They'll all be listed as items that are deductible and arriving at AGI. Well, that gets us in our first division. Only deductions, any deduction not listed in 62 with a little star because Congress then added a special provision that modified the 199 Cap A deduction. But basically, every deduction not in 62, ignoring 199 Cap A, is a miscellaneous deduction. The default treatment of all deductions under the code is miscellaneous. You will not see under, or I should say default treatment of all deductions is itemized. You will not see next to taxes in the, you know, in the code that individual taxes are considered an itemized deduction. You can read the section. It'll never tell you that. You'll never see a, a tell you the section 212 expenses for let's say preparing an individual's tax return or related to investment brokerage fees for a brokerage account. You'll never see them say that's an itemized deduction because they don't. They simply say effectively with with the way section 62 works and the related section 63 that all deductions are considered itemized deductions unless they're grabbed by 62 and moved into the computation of AGI. So that's how individuals work. Also, trusts work the same way. So we have a special rule there. Now, Section 63 defines itemized deductions, which is basically all those. But then what it says is, you know, those that are not listed, it should say, in Section 62. That's what we're doing. Now, then we have Section 67 that describes miscellaneous itemized deductions. And what that section tells us is miscellaneous itemized deductions are those not in a new list found at 67B. So medical expenses are in that list. Taxes are in that list. Charitable contributions are in that list. right? But what's not in that list, anything not in that list, is considered a miscellaneous itemized deduction subject to 2% limit. In fact, what it really says is it's just miscellaneous deductions. And you may say, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. There there are miscellaneous deductions not subject to percent limit. And that's a problem with the tax law versus how the IRS writes forms. Prior to 2018, the IRS had two categories of miscellaneous itemized deductions. And the first category was Jobs expenses and certain miscellaneous deductions, those got the 2%. And then Schedule A had a second category that they labeled other miscellaneous deductions. Those were not subject to 2% haircut. However, per the code, only the ones you listed in that first set on Schedule A were really miscellaneous deductions. The gambling expenses and other things that ended up In the other miscellaneous deductions line, you know, and what were the other miscellaneous deductions line, all of those things were actually listed in 67B as not a miscellaneous deduction. The IRS just figured that was the easiest way to refer to them. So the miscellaneous there is not the legal miscellaneous itemized deduction. It is just the generic use of the word miscellaneous. It's things that don't fit elsewhere. But if you look at your Schedule A now... It doesn't say miscellaneous for that line. That line where gambling expenses go and a few other things, that line now says other itemized deductions. It does not use the word miscellaneous because now the IRS realizes that the legal definition is really important. You don't get miscellaneous itemized deductions, period. So that's now become the issue. So what we really have here is when you really look at this whole thing is Every deduction is by default a miscellaneous itemized deduction. If it's listed in the list of 67B, it's no longer miscellaneous. It's just itemized. And if it's listed in the list of section 62, then we can take it out of itemized deductions entirely. So as I say, default treatment, if neither 62 or 63 refers to this deduction, 62 or I should say 67B refers to this deduction, It's a miscellaneous itemized deduction and it's a problem. In this case, it was a problem because of 2% limit. Today it's a problem just because we can't get them at all. So the IRS says 183B1. Well, they they say they don't fall to miscellaneous because that that was the taxes and others. But where do the B2 deductions fall? Right? Those ones that we wouldn't get unless we had a for profit activity. So, you know, we wouldn't otherwise get them but we're going to be allowed them to offset the hobby income. Where do they go? The IRS position is they're miscellaneous itemized deductions. The taxpayer says no. Now, the tax court analyzed this rule, and what the court noted, they did the analysis I just mentioned, and said, well, based on that analysis, these items are all miscellaneous itemized deductions, right? You know, they're, they're, that's where they are. It goes there. The IRS is correct. And the court notes that they had a little trouble, though, finding an actual tax court case that held this in any form other than dicta. Well, let's have a quick discussion. What do they mean by dicta? Well, roughly, we can say dicta is when a court discusses something in an opinion, maybe even tells you the proper treatment of something in an opinion. But that whole discussion is utterly irrelevant to the result of the case. So, for instance, in this case, the tax court said, look, 181B1 items. The IRS is not, you're asking us for a ruling that they're not miscellaneous itemized deductions. The IRS position right now is that they go on the taxes line. They're not miscellaneous. You're not asking us to rule they're not itemized deductions. So that points moot for your ruling because our ruling wouldn't affect that. Had they told us how to treat those properly, uh, you can imply it from the decision, but had they told us that answer, it would have still technically been dicta here. It wasn't relevant. They were just looking for a ruling of, are these miscellaneous itemized deductions? Um, So maybe in the ultimate case, yeah, it would become important, but not in this case. And if this was truly our only issue, then yeah, it wouldn't have been relevant. So it wouldn't be that. Well, we often have dicta, and they do point out a series of tax court cases where this has been mentioned in dicta. But never have we actually had this question apparently ruled upon by the tax court. At least the tax court didn't find a copy they could reference that, that ruled on this issue. And the major reason why is because every other hobby loss case I have ever worked with, ever read, has always just been worried about whether we had a hobby loss or not. And I suspect this case, that's going to be an argument as well. Because the taxpayer in this case is merely asking for partial summary judgment only on this issue. So there are a whole bunch of other items left to be decided. But this is one. Now, why would you go for this? My guess, if I had to guess, the most likely theory I can come up with, and it could be wrong there could be other reasons i'm sure some people may point that out but my thought is it's to me it seems highly likely that the taxpayer you know they they may be considering well do we you know settle the case and the irs may be dug in on well these have to be miscellaneous itemized deductions and maybe the taxpayer says well if they weren't miscellaneous itemized deductions i wouldn't care as much about them you know i'd go ahead and do it i would lose the hobby loss but i could compromise otherwise and accept it if i got to offset that income above the line so you know this could very well inform a future settlement it'd be my guess as to why we do this you know in essence if it's all going to be below the line we need to fight like mad on the issue of whether this is truly a hobby because if we lose it um you know all of this stuff moves below the line Maybe we're okay with the losses not being deducted. Yeah, we wouldn't like that, but maybe the losses per year are a much smaller number. So we might be willing to waive those or at least, you know, do something else a little different. Uh, you know, we might concede, we might be able to then get to a settlement amount with the service. But we are not going to get there as long as all expenses have to be considered these 2% items. So that's what we're looking at. At uh, court, unfortunately, like I said, disappointed them. They did find one court of claims case that actually ruled on this issue in a way that mattered in the case. So they referenced that. But it was interesting they couldn't find a task court case directly on it. And frankly, I don't remember one directly on it. Uh, we do have regulations that state that's how you do it. Uh, and really, we've never really had this challenge per se. Because again, most people are fighting the other issue. They don't want to concede that they've lost it and, you know, have the loss gone, so they're not really fighting this issue. You know, if they lose that loss, and in many cases their income, in most hobby loss cases I've read, you know, their revenues have been insanely low. Uh, it's not really worth the time to argue where the deduction would go. But in this case, we do. Now, the taxpayer first objected, and they said, look, a plain text reading of Section 183 requires it to be deducted above the line." We've discussed this a few weeks ago that yes, the taxpayers are correct that if the plain text of Section 183 unambiguously states that this is a deduction to be considered in computing AGI, then it doesn't matter what regs say, IRIS guidance says, doesn't matter anything else, what congressional intent might have been, we would get the deduction above the line. So they're correct on that. We discussed that in detail, right? As you know, going back to the Connecticut National Bank case, the Supreme Court's theory is if the law clearly gives us an answer, we're done. Quit looking, go home. It's over. But the court pointed out in this case that Section 183 itself never, they said we got a deduction. They said nothing about what type of deduction we got. It left the question open, just the same as the tax, you know, When you go back and you look at Section 162, it doesn't say if it goes above the line or not. And as we know, if you're an employee, it goes below the line. If you're not an employee, it goes above. But that's defined in Section 62, not in 162. Right? You know, we we go, look, the deduction for for an IRA deduction, deductible IRA, that section doesn't tell us whether we get it above the line or below the line section 212 for miscellaneous side of my deductions it doesn't tell us if it's above the line or below the line deduction 183 is the same way it's silent silence is not unambiguous anything you know silence is silence there's no commentary in the law on where this is deducted now what happens is people read this and they assume because it would have been deducted on schedule c they assume the deduction stays on schedule c but again that's confusing the form with the law this is no longer a deduction directly under 162 this is a deduction that would be disallowed under 162 because it doesn't qualify as a trade or business operated for a profit and now it's being allowed under 183 so as the court said 183 says nothing about it and certainly section 62 says nothing that says this is allowed in computing AGI. So the court says, sorry, it's not plain text. You know, what text says it's deducted above the line? You're trying to imply something from it, not saying it's an itemized deduction, but no code section says something's an itemized deduction. So that's our problem. Then they said, well, there's a conflict between section 67 and 183. And they said, if there's a conflict in statutes, The more, you know, the more specific statute, in this case, 183 for expenses related to a hobby loss, would override the more general statute, which is 67. And that is a correct rule of statutory construction. You know, if you have a later enacted statute that, you know, is at tension with a previously enacted one, then the more specific statute takes precedence. And that's what's happened. But the court said in this case, there's nothing here for the year in question that makes this a tension issue, right? Both statutes can be fully followed without having any tension between the two. 183 never said it had to go above the line. So the fact that 67 doesn't list it as above the line doesn't really put it at tension. Now, there's an interesting aside that you might begin to wonder if you remember the IRS rulings on excess deductions on termination for trust or estate. Does that analysis change in 2018? Because there the IRS decided, well, Congress left this deduction in the code. But and we said it was miscellaneous itemized deduction. So obviously it must not be. Um, Would they come to the same analysis here? I doubt it, but you know there might be an opening once tcj comes in but that gets a little weird you know saying and you know the argument be well 67 the more general now bars the deduction but 183 allows it there's a whole lot of issues though we look at things barred as a deduction under the tax cuts and jobs act so i'm not sure how far down that road the irs will go finally they said well Regulation 1.183-1T is invalid. That regulation states that these are miscellaneous sized deductions. The court said, look, we're not even going to comment on that because here, the law is unambiguous and clear. It doesn't matter what Reg 1.183-1T says, doesn't say how it was adopted or anything else because it's irrelevant. If that reg doesn't come to the result that the code comes to from its unambiguous text, then the reg's wrong, but it's irrelevant. It won't help, so we're not touching that one. Now, as I say, now our bigger problem is how do we deal with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Acts and this rule? As I said, what the IRS did with the excess deductions on termination, saying, well, wait, 67G gets rid of the deduction, but they left this in, could that logic be used for this? As I say, maybe. And I'm really drawing out maybe there because I'm, I'm skeptical. But I'm willing to be persuaded. Uh, I certainly would say it's a disclosed position if you did it uh, and went down that route and said, well, it's got to be allowed some way. Because, you know, like you said with this and you would reference back to the, uh, you know, statements they put out initially and their justification for in the preamble to allowing the deductions for excess deduction on termination the way they did under the revised regs, you know, you try to argue that's that's what's fundamentally different, but I still think it's a real stretch. The problem of course is, you know, make sure you understand that. And what it really says is hobby losses, especially if you have a case like this one where there is significant income, but they're still losing tons of money, you know, so they're doing something but the cost is, you know, but the costs being incurred are way more than the income that's coming in. Uh, yeah, you know, we're we're on the hook potentially for the gross income tax is essentially what it is. So be aware of that. Client should be aware. We do now have a tax court case though that tells us it's it's yeah, we're gonna have to just include the income in computing AGI. And the deductions would go to Schedule A at best, and potentially nowhere after TCJA. Finally, let's talk about the IRS finalizing regulations for a fee for an estate tax closing letter. And the IRS had already proposed this rule earlier this year. You may remember we had the proposed regulations. They want to charge a $67 fee for a closing letter. A couple of years ago, the IRS put out a notice saying they would not automatically issue closing letters to to an estate any longer. They only do it if somebody requested it. They suggested you could use the transcripts. Now the IRS comes back and has said, well, you know, they're not really required. I know that maybe, you know, your your probate court may like them, uh, but they're not required. So we're going to charge a user fee now for them. Right. And they proposed a sixty seven dollar fee that proposed fee has been finalized. So it will be sixty seven dollars will be the fee in question. So, if you want this, it's going to cost the estate sixty-seven dollars uh, to get the closing letter. Who has to pay the fee? According to the reg, is the estate of decedent or any other person requesting right an estate closing letter to be issued with respect with respect to the estate? May have a non-probate estate. Does a taxable estate be really bad? But we've heard about that with certain entertainers recently think we go back to you know to a couple of major uh deaths from entertainers singers who never quite got their estate you know their wills put together uh so i guess you could have that they would probably want a closing letter uh you know the party so probably whoever's been appointed would do it whoever had the right to ask for it would do it now the fee begins being charged on october 28th the IRS got a number of comments to reduce the fee or to not charge one for each letter requested because there could be multiple requests. The IRS fundamentally said, look, the only estates that really need this are taxable estates. And since a taxable estate is going to have, you know, what, $11 million in it this year, and even next year, if the law change comes in and we go down to five, million, $67 compared to $5 million is just peanuts. Um, you know, it, it's probably costing you more to get the you know to get the somebody to draft up the request for the for the closing letter uh that's going in now. So they're saying, yeah, we don't have a lot of sympathy there. We've computed the cost based on our processing and we're gonna charge it sixty-seven. So it does begin on October twenty-eighth. So if you want to save the sixty-seven bucks and you have this issue and you're in a position to get the closing letter, so the IRS is in a position to issue it. Uh, yeah, you want to make sure your request gets gets to the IRS it has to be at the IRS by October twenty eighth. Uh so if you mail it on the you know, this is not anything subject to the postmark rule, it would appear. So if the IRS doesn't have it by the twenty eighth, it's going to be subject to the fee. So be aware of that. Okay. This has been Current Federal Tax Developments uh for the week of October the fourth. Again, we'll give you next week hopefully something new, although we're getting close to the deadline. I always get iffy on that final weekend before the ap- a deadline because I need to have time to get this together. And time sometimes depends on how clients cooperate and still have uh, a couple that haven't got their stuff in and they're always on that. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm getting, it. I'm getting it real, real soon. I'll get it right away, get it right away. And of course, I'll warn them that now it's too late. We might not get them filed on time, but you all know how that works and you get feeling like, yeah, I should get it done. So might have that problem in a couple of cases so we'll see if we have a problem next week but if not i plan to get back on here Uh, also i do follow along as i mentioned on the connect sites for a few state society cpas i'm a member of so i follow along on the state society connect sites for arizona new jersey uh, minnesota illinois and washington certain boards there so if you have any questions there you can post and i will you know if i see them and i think i can help i'll try to give some information there i also do on the not connect uh system that's run by the idaho society of cpa so i do look in there otherwise take care we look forward to seeing you next week when we'll talk about more current federal tax developments